are back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. Arc City is made possible with the help of U.S. Ski and Snowboard, and of course, with the official sponsorship of Spider Active Sports. Spider has kept the U.S. Ski team warm and speedy for 30 years. All right, 2021. What a year. My computer broke, my phone broke, and my leg broke. Now, I hate excuses, but I hope you can forgive me for not publishing an episode for just a little bit. But the leg is now on the mend, which means it's time to open the gates of Arc City once more. And a quick disclaimer, I am not, I'm no longer on painkillers, so if I say something stupid, that's just me. Which reminds me, someone asked how much editing I do to my episodes, to my podcast. The answer is basically none. So I believe that it's not really fair journalism to edit any part of someone's remarks. And so I never, ever edit a question I ask or an answer I receive. But sometimes I say, um, a few too many times. And so I will edit those out for your sake. Anyway, I've got a great show for you today. First up is Ryan Cochran Siegel for an in-depth interview about Ryan's recent success and also the legend of the famed Cochran family. After that, it's a skiing history segment about climate change that's as alarming as it is fascinating. Then we fill out our five-minute call slot with Alice McInnes to check in on her. And at the end, as always, we read the mail. First, I want to extend some healing vibes to the crazy number of World Cup skiers that have been hurt this season. Forgive me if I miss someone, but this is the list I have right now. Maro Kavietzel, Urs Kreienbuhl, Nicole Schmidhofer, Nina Ortlieb, Alexander Kilde, Atla McGrath, Lucas Broughton, Cam Alexander, Brody Seeger, and the Americans have been hit hard too. Keely Cashman's currently out. Um, Sam DePratt, Kyle Negamir, Tommy Ford, Alice McInnes-Duran, who we will talk to and ryan cochran siegel who i don't think he's out for the season i spoke with ryan today briefly he's doing well he just needs some more info on his neck before he decides when he will race next and so what you're about to hear is the conversation i had with ryan several weeks ago right after the Bormio races before both my computer and my leg broke thankfully icloud saved me at least it's it saved my recording and here we are so without further ado the rising speed superstar hailing from ski racing loyalty in the land of Vermont, Ryan Cochran Siegel. Uh, welcome to Arc City, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy, for having me. First Excited off, be here. yeah, first off, congrats on winning your first World Cup. It's pretty cool. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. I was going to try to get you on the snow on the show earlier. Um, after you had that second place in Valgardena, but I was like, nope, I think he might have some more. I'm just going to wait a second. You did. Um, plus criteria for being a title guest on Arc City is winning a World Cup. But I mean, no, no, that's just informal. <laughs> that's just informal. <laughs> I mean, you, you got to cut it off somewhere. Like you can't just have everyone signing up and being on the show, you know? No, exactly. It's got to be special. So yeah. um, congrats on on making it on the show. <laughs> thank you yeah that was the main reason why i wanted to win that world cup was so i could be on it oh ryan stop it i'm honored <laughs> anyway uh where are you right now we are in house austria um training in rider almond i'm with tommy river and ted just trying to get ready for out and gs is coming up gotcha changing gears back to gs after that little speed block um so do you train any speed like is it hard to find speed training to this during the season like what do the speed guys do do they just train gs when there's training yeah they um i mean it depends on where we are and where they are there's kind of like there's parts of the season where we're together and when i'm with them we pretty much only our training is just training runs and then sometimes we have good warm-up courses um i think they're gonna actually go to fulgaria or find training elsewhere if there's good conditions uh and i think they'll probably get like a mix of gs and super g okay it's not really it doesn't like we don't really need to train downhill because we get so much time on it um with the training runs and then racing so it's kind of once the season starts going though you're also like you're pretty much just focused on racing there's not a whole lot of changes going on yeah because you because you'll do you'll do training ones like thursday 
three, like two to three training runs sometimes. And then, you know, it's basically half the week taken up by training and racing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, Gotcha. Oh, and um, it's like, yeah, you go, you go. Um, I was just like, I mean, when we say training runs, they're still high intensity and very like race focused. Um, it's a very racing style environment. Yeah. Like, so I think that's kind of, it can be really good. Um, if you're on, I think it's challenging when you, you feel like you need to make changes. It's just not a lot of opportunity to make changes at that point mid season. Yeah. So let's actually, that's a perfect segue. Cause I want to talk about, um, you know, your recent results. So I'm just going to give people a recap if they haven't been keeping track. You had a career best eighth place in Valgardena Super G, then a career best first podium at the downhill there. Then you proceeded to win both training runs at Borromeo before winning the Super G race there and then being just three tenths out in the downhill after some sketchy maneuvers, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, But everyone who knows ski racing knows that sometimes things just click, you know, and you're talking about how middle of the season it's hard to to make things kind of change because the training you've got from the summer is the training you've got so what clicked um i think a combination of things really i think what i attribute to a lot of the recent successes where i was in in val um after the training runs and then especially after the super g race i felt like well training runs i thought i was skiing well i was just making mistakes and then Mm -hmm. When I raced a Super G, um, the setup that I was on was just not comfortable. It found it felt like there's just nothing underneath me, and my skis were washing. And this is the Super G in Val d'Isere. Yeah, Super G in Val d'Isere. Yeah. And after that day, I mean, I was incredibly frustrated, incredibly down, um, trying to find an answer. And I think just turning around enough for the downhill the next day, um, trying to refocus and get myself in a right mentality. It was kind of like, all right season hasn't started off that great. I mean, it actually was a pretty terrible start to the season and, and just refocusing. Um, and I think that downhill day was definitely like, it was a funny race. A lot of the guys later on kind of threw it in there. Um, like, I mean, Urs started, I think Bib 16 came down winning and then Stratinger was starting between the 20 and 30 came down winning. And then, um, Martin Charter actually ended up winning the race from Bib 41. So I had come down, um, with a good run. I mean, I ended up 13th, which I think is like not actually that bad of a day. Um, all things considered. And from that, it was kind of like, okay, like I feel like I have my feet underneath me. I can go from there. Like I knew Gardena, or at least I thought Gardena wasn't really going to be my hill. So just trying to focus more on the training aspect, like find a flow with the hill. The training runs were good. Like honestly better than I was expecting. And like with the super G I was, I was just like, I didn't actually, I thought I was going to get bumped out of the top 20 and start 20 to 30. And so when I started, when I had like bib, I forget what I ran there, but when I was still in the 20, I was like, Oh, this is sweet. Yeah. And then was able to lay down like a really solid run, um, skiing wise and all that. So it kind of just like each day stacked on each other, um, building a little bit more confidence and, and by race day in the downhill, I like, I still was in that mentality of like, this isn't really your hill. Like you're kind of more of a tech based guy, less glidey. So it took a lot of pressure off and I was able uh-huh. to see how I wanted to go about, um, that execution. And yeah, definitely like it flowed really well from, from top to bottom. And I mean, that I think allowed me to do so well and land on the podium and like, and then with that, that's like a huge weight off your shoulder when you actually yeah. finally get on the podium. Like I think as a ski racer racing a lot of world cup every day, you'd look at it like, Oh, maybe this will be the day. And then it wasn't. And it's funny that day I was actually thinking like, yeah, this probably isn't going to be your day, but just try to do the best you can and, and focus on the skiing. And See, then. that is, th- that is the best. Like, I love that. I always say that th- this is an, uh, we're an anti expectations podcast because expectations kind of suck and they're, oh, you know, absolutely, especially totally in agree. ski racing. And yeah. it's funny listening to stories like that, where you kind of, you, you weren't counting yourself out, but you were, you didn't have any expectations. You were just skiing. It sounds like. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it was funny. I also didn't have any expectations for the Altavidia DS, but, um, that one, <laughs> that one I kind of struggled with and ended up last for people that scored points. So there are good <laughs> days and bad. And I think, I mean, it's a lot easier to get 29th in a GS when you got second in a downhill the day before. So mentally I was like, all right, this is, I mean, I'm still in a good place and all that. Like, yeah. and then going into Bormio too, it was, 
I mean, just had some like off days with the speed team and patch, um, really took it low key and like get to Bormio, the hills fully watered, like good ice, a little bit of grip, but definitely like rattly and gnarly. And I mean, it, it was like going from vacation mode straight into like as gnarly of a world cup you kind of ever see. So it was a quick eye opener. And, um, I mean, yeah. I think I was just like trying to feel things out, like allowing myself to just kind of take it as a training run, not trying to be race speed. And the fact that I was fast was kind of another like <laughs> automation, you know, yeah, like that's cool. All right. You don't have to try so hard. Like your skiing's there. Just, um, trying to execute on race day is yeah. what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. That resonates a lot with me. So you talk about your, your days off in patch, which is where the U S team has an apartment and that was Christmas. So what did you guys do for Christmas? Anything particular? Yeah, we drove to Bormio. <laughs> like every Christmas. No, it was um it was cool. So the speed team, both men and women actually were staying in those apartments. And then um Luke and Ben toward the like once they finished with Madonna, they came as well. So we were we were still staying in our groups. Um, but it was also kind of cool, like socially distancing, uh seeing everyone, not just our like small speed group uh-huh. so got the small guys in there too yeah 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 mm-hmm. like just all fresh feet you know yeah definitely it, it 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 changes when you're on the road with the same group no matter how good the group is it's always nice to see fresh faces yeah even if you're socially yeah. distanced or whatever yeah and i mean it was cool like seeing breezy she had just had a lot of success like yeah. a lot of that women's team um well i guess jackie was pretty beat up but for the most part, it's just kind of, yeah, it's, it's nice to have a little bit of a change. And like, I mean, I love hanging out with the speed team too, like Bryce, Jared, Travis, um, Sam and Eric, but yeah, yeah. getting a little variety is always good. So, I mean, yeah. we didn't really do anything in patch. We were just kind of, <laughs> did you have a Christmas walking. tree? Did you exchange presents or was it just, uh, not in patch. We do a white elephant exchange, um, when we get to Bormio. So mm-hmm. we did that before the first training run, like kind of right when we got there, which is always a lot of fun. I think everyone was pretty psyched with their gifts that they ended up with. And, but I think it's like when you're away from home, you don't really just, you're not trying to like make up for the holiday. I think it's a lot easier just like not just to kind of ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And then maybe that makes you feel a little less homesick too. If you, if you don't do much, put too much emphasis on it. Yeah. So, okay, Ryan, we got to get to this, uh, this Bormio downhill run. Um, I think it was twice you went, you almost killed yourself basically. And one of the yeah. jumps you landed on your bindings and just kind of sat on your butt in the snow for a while, um, made it look real smooth. So tell me about that. Like what was your mindset in that race? And you know, what were you thinking once all of that went down? Well, the, like after the training runs, winning both training runs, I mean, I recognized their training run, so I wasn't getting putting a whole lot of like emphasis on that. But I think also then winning the Super G was there was definitely a little bit more of a heightened attention. I felt not that I was like added pressure, but I think you just kind of like you're a little more aware of um, that like going on. And people were like, "Oh, you're the favorite." Like, not people. I mean, the media were saying, "Oh, do you think you're the favorite now?" And I'm like, "No way, am I the favorite?" Like, there's mm-hmm. so many good skiers. So. It was, I was just trying to go out of the start with like a very similar mental approach as I had in the past few races, um, which I honestly think I did. It was more like the conditions, uh, it had snowed like prior to the Super G and they had to clear a bunch of snow, um, between inspection and the race of the downhill. So the track track, I think like changed a little bit from what we saw. And so that top jump. I think they just honestly like cleared off, but I think there's just a little rattle um, mm-hmm. before the entrance or like as you're entering the jump. So really what happened was I just like hit the rattle and immediate reaction was kind of like to be defensive, which put me in the back seat and then flew off, like just kind of rotating backwards. So it wasn't like I was trying to like, just as a lot of speed skiers say, send it or uh-huh. like attack. I was really trying to not to do that. I was trying to just like ski fluidly and, and ski through things. It was just the, the conditions kind of put me in that place. Um, and I was honestly just incredibly lucky that I made it through there when I was like in the air falling backward. I was like, <laughs> Oh man, I just like blew that race and okay. landed, <laughs> landed. And, and I was like, Oh wow. That's like 
I'm still in it. Like that wasn't that bad. Yeah. And then, I mean, with Bormio too, you just immediately switch to like what's coming at you next. And I totally forgot about that mistake up top. So I actually skied the middle part of the course as well as I had all week. Um, and uh-huh. that was just like falling within and being technically and tactically smart um, that it kind of like it came together well. And then by the time I got to the bottom, like skied that last pitch, I think when I had that second mistake, it was like, having had to do a full like max um one rep up at the top and then ski the majority yeah. of the only get to the bottom like with i mean it was just the last split that was left i think i was expecting to have more legs in the tank uh-huh. than i had and i was just reacting a little bit slower than i had in the training run so um which put me in like once again a, a more backseat position which is never good as a ski racer especially going into some terrain so no. that's what led to the la- the second one which um wasn't great like i mean i think i was still leading by two tenths at that split and uh i mean i lost quite a bit of time but to make it down healthy and and still in there i mean i was only yeah. three tenths that was really one of the best downhill races as so far that i've had so yeah all in all good day for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that you actually created another perfect segue because um, we talk about barely saving yourself in this downhill. Um, I'm basically going to do a reverse chronological order on this thing because I want to now go back and talk a few years ago about your injuries as unfortunately that is a defining piece of your career and, a, and setbacks you had to overcome. So you had a pretty gnarly one in 2014, right? Yeah, it it was connected to my ACL injury, um, in 2013 that mm-hmm. it was ACL and then lateral meniscus. And when I came back in 2014, I was just doing NORAMs and re-injured it. I mean, like fully cleaned out my lateral meniscus and then also cartilage. So I skied with that injury. I was actually, I was still skiing, um, mm-hmm. for like two months to try to finish out the season. And then it was like, even though I you knew it. you had the injury, even though you knew it was blown out, I was, so it was like, it's something that you can ski with and I would have pain um, in certain movements, but other movements were okay. So I was like, maybe it's just like scar tissue that's in there that needs to get cleaned out. And that's honestly what I thought it was. Um, I like met with a couple doctors who thought, thought the same thing. And I think at that point you kind of just convince yourself. And then when I got the MRI, it was like, it was a lot worse than I could have expected. So, um, from there it was kind of like, it's weird being able to ski. And then all of a sudden you're like, you don't know when you're going to ski again. Um, and I actually ended the year like having a pretty good season, uh, somehow, but, <laughs> and like at the same time, it, so this was end of March when this was all going down. And, uh-huh. uh, I missed racing at nationals, which is kind of a bummer. Cause I really wanted to do that after missing it the year before too. Um, and I was like, okay, like how long is this thing going to take? Like five months, get a scope, be good to go, mm-hmm. be racing sold in. And it was not like that at all. I had one surgery, medial meniscus repair, um, with Dr. Robert LaProd out in Vail that like five days later from the MRI. And then I got put on a, um, waiting list for, to get a cadaver for both the meniscus and the cartilage, which, uh, that was, I mean, it took like five months and then a full year once I had that surgery end of August in 2014, um, Oh, I and forgot I they just, do. Wait, I got to go back. They forgot to do, they do that. So you have a dead person's like yeah, uh, tendon in yeah, you. Yeah, two, two, uh, two dead people's pieces in me, which is kind of crazy when I really think about it. I <laughs> yeah, try not to think about it too much. But. <laughs> okay, we can move on from that. So continue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then like, I mean, from there is just rehabbing, going to school, um, trying to take my mind off skiing, just trying to get back healthy. And it, it was a full year of rehab. Um, but and taking it slowly, I think I definitely learned a lot. And once I was back on snow, I appreciated it so much. Like, I mean, just so thankful, thankful that I was able to get back, you know? It yeah. wasn't like when I met with the prod initially, he was like, yeah, it's 60, 40 chance you'll ever be able to return to ski racing. So, wow. Um, I think so, was, so when you're, when you're, you know, you're a couple of weeks out from surgery and you did, you did a couple surgeries. So you're out from surgery, you're sitting at home nothing to do. Does the world cup seem just incredibly far away? Like what is that feeling like? Um, and is it, is it motivating? Is it depressing? I'm imagining it's partly both. I would say not as far away as you think. Um, at the time of my second surgery, I was living with my cousin and her husband out in park city. So Adam Cole, my 
um, roommate slash cousin-in-law. He was also Ted's coach at the time. So he was traveling the world um, with the World Cup, like still full coaching mode. I was living at his house with Jess. So I think like there's still a connection, but I also knew that it wasn't like it was disconnected from myself in a way, which Mm -hmm. was kind of like it was a good, good situation to be in, like keeping skiing at the forefront of mind, but also not like not scrolling through fists every day, you know, like you can. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think like I did a good job of kind of like in a way checking out just like going through my own motions and my own life at that time. Um, I definitely like I hammered out a pretty heavy course load in school, okay. which was good uh, to get the mind. Yeah, because I was going to yeah. ask like what hobbies you developed in all your time recovering. But I, I guess <laughs> school is, is the big one. Yeah, school and physio was the main main thing. Um, and then probably like during the fall fantasy football. And that's about that was my life. <laughs> Did would, you become an absolute fantasy football nerd? Uh, I think like I definitely would overanalyze every weekend and get pretty mm-hmm. into it. Not that I was like that successful, but yeah, you, you find things that can draw your attention, and occupy your time. Um, but it was, it was a good learning experience. And mm-hmm. I think I, I really appreciate being able to go to school that during that time, like that was huge. Definitely. So are you, how, how far are you through college? Are you done with it? No, I'm definitely no. not done with it. I have, uh, like 60 something credits. Um, so I, Currently, I try to take classes during the summer through the University of Vermont, um, mm-hmm. just kind of chipping away with some type of engineering degree. But I'm, there's still a good amount left. I, I would assume that I won't finish college until I'm done skiing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's it's cool that you're working through it. And so, still talking about this injury and in terms of how it affects you now, do you still have to monitor your your load and how many runs you take in training? Yeah. Um, it depends on kind of just like, like sometimes my knee will over the course of a few days will like, I call it getting tired. It just like fluid kind of comes on and the muscles get a little bit more tight where I have to like monitor that other times I'm totally fine can hammer away, like run after run after run. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just like, I feel like I have a pretty good gauge for myself, like where my body is at, um, that I have to watch out for. And like, I think coaches too, um, Forrest and I have a pretty good, uh, just communication with that so communication I, I don't think i'm not getting like millions of miles on snow and it also like going between events also matters too so just trying to have a macro look at it when i'm training um it's definitely key i like that i like that term a macro look the big picture as they say right <laughs> yeah um, yeah so let's stick with this reverse chronology thing and bring it all the way back to the beginning in Co- at Cochrane Ski Area. So for those who don't know about Cochrane Ski Area, um, your, your grandfather, right, started Cochrane Ski Area in Vermont. Yep. Um, yep. Back when you, uh, your mom and her siblings were kids and all four of them made the U.S. team. Your mother won an Olympic gold. And since then, five of your cousins have competed on the U.S. team and most recently you. So that's all. Am I saying that all right there? Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, that's impressive you know that. Uh, well, I did my research. Actually, there is a uh, a skiing. It's called Skiing Cochrane's. It's a Wikipedia oh, yeah. page. Yeah, well aware of that page, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is cool uh, that your family, your you know, has a has a Wikipedia page. So it's a it's a tiny hill. I mean, it's a it's a slalom. Like, does you guys don't run yeah, GS it's a tiny on hill it, to do you? Jimmy, it's a it's a wonderful place to me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and it's what one rope toe or two rope toes, right, in a T bar. Yeah, the so one's like an actual rope toe, and then one's like a beginner um, orange handle cable mm-hmm. rope toe. So, and then yeah, the T bar, um, and I think it's like under three hundred vertical feet, so yeah. it's small. But it's objectively small in your heart. It's huge. Yeah. So, and then the the rope toe for anyone who hasn't been there, it's a it's basically like a truck engine, right? And the, <laughs> and the, and the rope toe yeah. moves. It doesn't stop. It moves at like you know twenty five miles an hour, something crazy. Yeah. Yeah, you have to like you have to ski into it with speed so that as you're you like make a turn onto the rope toe so you don't burn your hands or your gloves. Yeah, like an old old trick you learn. Or you can wear glove savers as well. Um, but that's kind of for more the intermediate skier, not the expert. Gotcha. But yeah, it's awesome. Like yeah, you. I mean, I feel like it's probably similar to like a high speed quad turnaround, but um, 
but you're, you're just, just you like when you're going up the rope toe, you're working on your upper body strength. And when you're going down, you're, you're working on your skiing. So it's a good all round, um, situation. So tell me about growing up skiing at Cochran's. I mean, you got a million laps. What was it like? Basically Get, walk me through it. Yeah, I think it's a, it's honestly a lot different than it is now there too. Um, we didn't really have very good snowmaking. We didn't have lights. So it was very raw, um, new England, Vermont style skiing. Like you would have to, I mean, we like, even the grooming was, I remember the grooming more or less was, uh, we had, I guess we had like a mini groomer with a, um, culvert, like attached to the end that would roll up the hill. And that was like what I thought corduroy was, um, for (laughs) a while, but it was just like, it was like raw skiing, which I think is cool. Like Mm -hmm. skiing over grass and, and skiing just like, like stuff that never got groomed. It was just kind of like bumpy, good stuff. Um, half the courses I feel like were made with bang bamboo gates once in a while we'd have enough snow to have a um like breakaways but yeah and like you grew up skiing with your buddies all club kids just kind of getting dropped off there right after school skiing for a couple hours until it got dark and doing the bombing run and then like doing all over again and um, and and would you just ski every day was that how it went no it was it wasn't as much as you would i mean it was a good amount especially at a young age but mondays the ski area was never open so and then my school, like elementary schools after school program, we would ski, um, probably start skiing at like three in the afternoon until like five, depending on, I mean, later in the season when this, when, when it's there's more light daylight longer. Yeah. Um, but that was Tuesdays and Thursdays. And once in a while I'd go for Friday as well. And then Saturdays we train and Sundays we go to a, um, Northern Vermont council race. So yeah, five days a week we were skiing, but it was like two hours and then Saturdays we'd ski all day. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, so and I'm yeah. curious, like you're gro- you're growing up. Um, was most of your family around, like your your aunts and uncles and your cousins? Yeah, yeah. And my, I would say it was like split. Like, so Jimmy, my uncle Bob and his kids, so Jimmy, Tommy, and Amy, they lived in Keene, New Hampshire, so way far away, you know, two hours away. Mm-hmm. Um, my cousin Robbie. And then Tim and Jess, so my aunt Lindy, um, her family, they live five minutes away in the same town as Starchboro. So we, I was always skiing with Robbie and my sister Kate. Um, and like there was, it was kind of growing up, like Tim and Jess went to the academy when I was still a little youngster. Um, Jimmy was skiing at UVM or Middlebury. Um, and then eventually they, J- Jimmy and Jess made the team mm-hmm. pretty young. So it was kind of like, everyone was at a different level, but we we're kind of all on similar paths. Um, just different time frames, if that makes sense. Yeah. that Yeah, it does. And, and did you hear any, were, were there always stories circulating like of your aunts and uncles and your mother? Um, and, and then your cousins as they're racing in a little bit higher, um, brackets as you, um, did you get any of those stories or like, what, what did you gain from being surrounded by all those racers? I, <laughs> Well, I knew my mom won the Olympics. Um, that was pretty apparent. <laughs> but I think it was like all the stories of, I mean, my mom or my aunt Marilyn having won the GS title in 69, my uncle Bob winning, winning the Honeycomb combined, um, like those types of things. It was kind of like you learned as you understood the like the sport of skiing. Um, so I'm sure I like knew those stats, but I didn't really like fathom them until as I was growing up. Okay. Um, those types of things. But yeah. And like, I mean, Jimmy watching Jimmy at the Olympics in 2006 was so cool. And just like having that connection, um, was very special. And again, when he was racing in 2010, like those types of things made a pretty big impact on me. Um, so. And would you, would you, would you get advice from Jimmy or your mom or anybody? I, um, I mean, I'm sure I got advice from everyone. Mm -hmm. My aunt Lindy, um, was actually, I would say had a very big impact because she was pretty much my coach. Um, kind of like my macro coach, my whole, uh, like until I made the ski team, I would say Mm -hmm. like going to Stowe, um, sophomore year in high school, like that was kind of, she always like overlooked both. I mean, she had a good understanding for ski racing in the East of like development, what's important, 
um, not worrying about like going to all the NDS style camps that mm-hmm. we know today, you know, like still just getting good training, getting good racing, um, focusing on the skiing. So she had a huge impact on my upbringing, upbringing, I would say, um, That's as cool. far as coaching. And the thing I'm trying to get at here is like a lot of people say, oh, skiing's in the Cochrane's DNA. And <laughs> and it probably is, you know, but there's also, I'm also wondering like being surrounded by an entire family and a history and all that of world-class skiers, you have access to this knowledge that a lot of kids don't have, um, like simple lessons that it took me a while to learn, like um, you know, looking for the fall line, a fall line in a race is more important than looking pretty or yeah. like, or simply just understanding how long a road it is to the world cup and to success and like how important it is to do kind of not get down about the small things, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, there was like, it wasn't just the fact that like, we all knew we could kind of like get to this level. I think it was the fact that we all uh, understood that path that like the path was attainable, but it took a lot of hard work and the hard work was the most important part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will actually say like growing up at Cochran's, it wasn't just like Cochran kids that were successful. There was a ton of skiers, um, that had like both junior level success and collegiate success. Um, so it was like, I mean, it's the environment there. It's not it's the environment. Yeah. yeah. Not just the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, and this is why I'm so passionate about this podcast, because if people, especially like parents and kids who don't come from ski racing families can listen to this and all the, you know, the lessons you're, you've learned that you're telling us yeah. and gain some insight. I think that's huge. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think skiing is a family sport. Um, but your mom does not have to be an Olympic champion in order for you to do well. You know, like I think Ted is the perfect example of that. Like just raw, hard work, being in a good situation um, with your club and just like doing as much as you could with that. Like his parents were not ski racers of any kind. They just were in park city. um, And I think he benefited from that. So Mm -hmm. you get people like me or Tommy, who's like Tommy's mom was also an excellent ski racer race on the ski team. Um, kind of same era as my mom and you get the other people as well that like had yeah. different paths and I think it's yeah. just the variety of paths is what makes um, this sport so cool and it's you know? especially cool for Americans because it seems like in 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 Europe the culture is so prevalent that so many uh, you know of your either your parents or your family or your friends have ski race as you're growing up but then in the U.S. there's so many American skiers that you know, you call it the American dream. They don't come from a ski racing family or whatever. And then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. you've got a few weeks until Kitzbühel. I'm bringing us back to the present here. A lot of people say that simply pushing out of the start gate on the Hanencom, they say it's the gnarliest course of all, is an accomplishment in itself. And that's what the majority of the field does. They just ski it. But I've also heard people say that there is a difference between skiing Kitzbühel and racing it. And racing it is that extra level of craziness where you're taking a little bit more risk. And is that how you see it? Is that accurate? I think, yeah, I think um, there are just a lot of different styles of speed skiers. Like some are more glidey, some are more tech-based. I think Kitzbühel is the type of place where that like, really shows where you come from um and i think like yeah some people get really hyped up for kids people like try to just ski out of their mind uh-huh. um and i think like you kind of you have to understand your limits in order to to make it down you know like you have to ski within yourself always um regardless of the event so it's a i mean it is like the most intimidating start on the world cup i would say and one, I would say like the most challenging, um, challenging hill to ski. And because of that, I think also challenging hill to, to be fast on. Uh-huh. Will you be gunning for the win is like, what's your, what's your approach to winning there? Um, well, last year was my first time skiing it. And oh. from what I took away from that, uh, was that I have a pretty good understanding of how the hill skis from like style hung down i still have to figure out that top 30 seconds 
um, and how to come onto the road after styling. So my approach is trying to figure out um, that whole section and then skiing the way that I know how to ski um, from there down, like through Larkin Truce and all that. So I don't think like where I'm at right now mentally, I'm not trying to win races. I'm just trying to trying to develop a plan that fits my style of skiing um, as best as possible. Yeah. And as, as we say again, uh, you know, it's a no expectations podcast. No matter how you do, you've got the whole population of Arc City cheering you on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so as we wrap up here, I'd like to give, I always, I always give my guests a chance to plug any projects they're working on at the moment, any sponsors, foundations. You got anything for me? Um, I mean, I feel like I have a lot for you. All right. Lay, say, lay it on me. I would say number one, um, just the support of the ski team um, and all the trustees and donors this season is especially hard with COVID and everything that we, um, what demands of our logistics and all that. So mm-hmm. that's number one, um, them being able to allow us to be here and, and able to compete and focus on, on what we are so passionate about. I think also shouting out my family, um, every single one of them is so supportive of my career and, and it means so much. I think T2 foundation was also a huge, um, supporter throughout my time on the ski team. Um, and then my sponsors as well, Smith, Rosignol, uh, Leckie, Roish. Um, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. I'm trying to like make sure I've got everything. But... Is Skeeta one? Oh, and Skeeta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You should check out that RCR RCS arcs print if you haven't yet already, um, do some self-promotion, <laughs> but Dang. yeah, just, I think skiing is, it's an individual sport, but it takes such a massive team. It takes um, a village. So many people around you. So I have to recognize everyone. Yeah, it takes a village. You got any, anything else? I, I don't want to cut you off. Mm. For those out there, I think if you want to kind of make it to this level, the most important thing is um, having a love for like the daily drive and um, kind of embracing the struggle. And I think the rewards come from that, not from just being the fastest skier each day. Yes. I like that. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll go out on that one. Thank you, Ryan Cochran Siegel for yeah. stopping by arc city. It means a lot. It means a lot to me and all of the fans and we wish you the best in Kitzbühel. Yeah. Thank you. There are a lot of people, not just Americans that are really excited about Ryan doing as well as he's been recently and winning and all that. And you can see why after listening to that conversation, he's a great guy, really down to earth. And I thought we touched on some really important points about ski racing and especially, you know, how knowledge is passed down and ski racing in the U S and the really cool culture that the Cochran's have cultivated, not just in their family, but in terms of giving back to all of the kids that are able to race at at their hill and do so in actually a pretty cheap way. We'll talk more about that. That's something I want to get into more as the podcast continues. But now you know what time it is, skiing history. That's right. It's time for your skiing history nugget of the week. I'm looking right now at the January-February 2018 edition of Skiing History. I've got a whole bunch of these Skiing History editions with me that I like to flip through. And this little blurb caught my eye. It's titled, Winter Warming. Climate change will limit where the Olympics can be held. And I'm going to read from here. If global emissions of greenhouse gases are not dramatically reduced... Only eight of the 21 cities that have previously hosted the Winter Olympics will be cold enough to reliably host the Winter Games after 2080, according to a multinational team of researchers led by the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Now, previous hosts such as Squaw Valley, Vancouver, and Sochi would fall off the list. I'll skip a little bit and continue here. The, the most crazy part I find, quote, The need for snowmaking, track, and jump refrigeration has intensified as the average February daytime temperature of winter games venues has steadily increased. Average temperatures have risen from 0.4 degrees Celsius, which is 33 degrees Fahrenheit, at games held in the 1920s through 50s, 
to 3 degrees Celsius, 38 Fahrenheit, to games during the 1960s through 1990s. And in the games held so far this century, 2000 and beyond, the average February daytime temperature of winter games venues has been almost 8 degrees Celsius or 46 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, that... Guys, I don't know if that's crazy to you, but it's crazy to me to realize that the average temperature for Olympic Games has been 15 degrees over freezing. I mean, come on, they're the Winter Games. And not only does this research include the fact that temperatures are rising and that many venues will not be possible in the future, but it also shows that we ca- we can control our fate, that emissions are linked to our destiny when it comes to Winter Olympics. So if we want to winter keep having Winter Olympics, then we need to make some sort of drastic changes. And that's what they say. It has to be a dramatic change. It can't just be um, a small change in emissions. So take that nugget as you will. Do some more research if you want. That is just one study to look at but definitely something to think about and something that pertains to us as ski racers. Alice McInnes, welcome to Arc City. Hello, hello. Well, it's great to have you here. It's it's a bummer it's only for a five-minute segment because I feel like I could talk to you for a long time about everything you've been through and all of the skills you've accrued, but we, you only, I only have you in my five minute slot. Unfortunately, it's funny cause I saw you at the PT clinic today. So we're, I'm probably going to be seeing more of you, but basically I just want to check in and how things are going. I wanted my listeners and anyone to just know how you're doing. I'm doing pretty good considering, I mean, like you mentioned, unfortunately we have kind of a crew at the PT clinic. I know. At- It's nice to see friendly faces behind your mask, sort of, but I kind of wish you guys weren't there. Yeah. (laughs) You and Kyle. Um, But otherwise, I'm doing well. I'm working my way off crutches this week, so that's always such a relief when you've been on weight bearing. You finally get that freedom to start walking around and like be able to carry a cup of coffee in the morning. That's really gratifying. So on the up and up. Yeah, I didn't realize how much you're hindered by crutches until I got on them and I'm like I can't I have a little backpack I carry with me around the house it's the weirdest thing yeah it's super annoying and you're like oh I just like shuffling things along the countertop you're like if I reach really far I can make it to the kitchen table (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so to to me so you you've had five season enders uh five season ending injuries and to me that seems unfathomable i can't even imagine it so what's going through your head right and and i also know that having done four already like you've you must have some incredible mental and emotional toughness not to mention physical toughness um but kind of what's going through your head right now and what lessons or mantras are you sticking with to get help you get back yeah i think in the moment right now i mean it's obviously really devastating as it is for you. Like you're injured and you have all this momentum going and you're excited for the season. And then it's just, it's over in a heartbeat. And that is always something to work through. And in my experience, it takes time to sort of work through that, like really heavy emotional phase in the beginning. And I feel like I'm mostly past that now. And I'm really just focusing on day by day and not, thinking too far and ahead you know I certainly want to get on snow as soon as I can but I know there's a lot of hurdles to overcome before that so I'm just focusing on one day at a time and what I can do every day to be a little bit better for the next day mm-hmm. and it does, does it seem like you're pretty unfortunately but you're pretty good at it at this point at the recovery thing yeah I yeah unfortunately I'm really good at it like I feel like I could do my own PT like if I had longer arms and could massage my own leg I feel like I don't even need to go to physical therapy at this point that is well um I'm, I'm impressed by you and uh I think you know you're definitely a role model for people who 
have one injury or two or i mean like you've done it all so um i'll pick your brain more at some point if anybody out there wants to hear more from alice she did a podcast uh the voice in sport podcast recently so you can check that out on all the podcast platforms and i guess alice at the end i usually just let um guests plug anything or just say anything they want to say um well yeah i just want to say thanks to all all the support and love it's really nice to hear from everyone and you're going through something tough i really appreciate everyone reaching out and it's just like such a nice community that we have within ski racing world that we're all here to support each other. And, you know, it's really easy to focus on the athletes that are succeeding and on the podium and doing well, but I really appreciate those that have taken the time to reach out to all of us that are on the other side of the coin right now, yeah. you know, not on the podium on, on the couch, so to speak. Yeah, it does mean, it definitely means a lot. Um, Oh, and my last question would be, so you won the training run like right before you crashed. Obviously, uh, that's where you, you're, you're striving to be. But like, what's do you have like a specific goal in mind that's keeping you motivated? Um, I wouldn't say I have a specific goal. I mean, I really am passionate about ski racing and I love the sport. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we're all motivated by like certain goals or, or dream goals of like achieving Olympic medals and things like that. But I'm really motivated just by the feeling of skiing and ski racing and that's what i miss the most is just actually skiing itself <laughs> yeah that definitely resonates with me all right alice well thank you for taking the time thank you jimmy hang in there <laughs> we just got a letter we just got a letter we just got a letter wonder who it's from all right it is time for the mail first a will asked so are we getting a gaming stream with you guys? Of course, he's referring to the idea that Lucas Broughton and I had to do an interview while streaming gaming because that's big these days, I guess. And Antion and Alessandro, a Racy, a Brandon, a Graham, and a Mike all sent me wonderful, nice messages about their enthusiasm for the podcast. A Steven told me that I should have asked Lucas what's up with his and Atle's big neck gaiters. Someone with the initial N suggested I have Michaela Schifrin on the show, which, by the way, is a possibility. I'm just waiting for a good time. And Esther Led... Wait, we learned how to say this. Esther Ledetska, the Czech two-sport gold medalist. I reached out to Esther. No response yet. If anyone has her contact, that would be awesome. And a Connor tells me, I think the smoothie reviews need to make a reappearance. He's referring to something I mentioned in my interview with Stephen Nyman. A Benjamin offered, it would be fun to have some ski cross athletes. And he also suggested discussing ski racing cultures in different regions. Man, I'm like a kid in a candy shop with all these ideas being thrown at me. I can't get to them all, but that doesn't mean that I won't get to some of them. And I want to thank you guys for reaching out. This shows me that working on the podcast is worthwhile. If I can get more people learning about ski racing, talking about it, and getting excited about different conversations about skiing, then I'm doing my job and then I'm happy. So keep reaching out. Remember, you can send those suggestions, questions, and grievances to arccityjimmy at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram at jimmy underscore who underscore. And that will do it for us here in Arc City today. Before I leave, I want to remind you that arcing, even thinking about arcing, even watching arcing, is a good medicine for any illness. I will be back, but hopefully the next episode is soon. I've got some great stuff lined up. Until then, I'm Jimmy Krupka, and thank you for visiting Arc City.